Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Dr. Patrick Moore is the author of Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout. He's um, a sensible environmentalist at Ecosense.me, co-founder of Greenpeace, of course, and his latest paper is The Positive Role of Human Emissions of CO2. New York City has announced that it will launch a multi-billion dollar lawsuit against major oil companies, BP Chevron, ConocoPhillips, ExxonMobil, and Royal Dutch Shell following San Francisco and Oakland. They started that some months ago. Patrick, it's great to have you back on the program. It's been a while. What do you suppose they're doing is, why is New York following in the footsteps or the footprint of San Francisco and Oakland? What's going on? Well, it, Roy, it's just politics and show, show, showboating. Um, they're just trying to get attention, I guess. I don't know what they thought Exxon was supposed to have known that they didn't tell anybody because nothing's happened yet. I mean, we, we, are, we are in a slightly warming trend over the last 300 years. The little ice age, the depths of it were around 1700. And by around 1800, it had warmed up enough to start melting the ice sheets and to start a sea level rise, which has been going on since then. But anybody can look on the Internet, for example, at the battery in New York City, and they can see that there has been absolutely no change in the rate of sea level rise since 1850. Now, that didn't have anything to do with fossil fuels. It's just that it's a warming trend, and it's probably nearly 100% naturally caused. And this is where it's time for us to shake our heads and realize that even though maybe people worried when they first started studying this about CO2 and warming, that it was going to be a problem. What we find now is actually the main effect of more CO2 is the greening of the earth. The deserts are greening, trees are growing faster, crops are in record abundance all around the world, and it's largely because we inadvertently have brought a balance back to the global carbon cycle where CO2 had been declining for 150 million years on a rather steady downward trend and the reasons for that are complicated, but it's mostly because more CO2, more, more carbon is going into marine sediments than is going back into the atmosphere again. And so the atmosphere has gradually been depleted to where during the height of the last glaciation, 18,000 years ago, it fell to 180 parts per million, which is only 30 parts per million above the death of plants. So we have to completely change our attitude about CO2. It is the basis of all life on Earth. That's where the carbon comes from in carbon-based life, from CO2 in the atmosphere and in the oceans. And it's good to have more of it, not bad. Do you get the feeling that the climate change or the uh, anti-CO2 argument or the AGW argument is starting to falter somewhat? And if it is, does this lead to the kinds of lawsuits that we're talking about? Well, I, I, you, I guess you could call it an act of desperation, of political desperation, I don't know, or not wanting to lose face because you were wrong. But the fact of the matter is, is it is not proven out. We are not in a catastrophic climate. And all they can talk about now is every hurricane, and they even blame the cold weather in the, in the east on global warming. Yeah, PDC. that's, kind of, that's, it, a, that's it, a bit of a reach, isn't it? <laughs> it's just become completely preposterous. Uh, There's no way that four molecules of CO2 out of 10,000 other air molecules around it can cause the Earth to fry. It it doesn't make sense in physics at all. Even the extreme case, if CO2 was able to exert its entire influence, would be less than one degree Celsius in doubling CO2. And we haven't doubled it. We've only increased it by 40%. So a, a, a one degree Celsius increase in global temperature would be a good thing. We've been cooling now ever since the, the Holocene thermal optimum, which peaked around eight, 9,000 years ago when we came out of the last glaciation. And every warm period since then, the Minoan warm period, the Roman warm period, the medieval warm period, has been warmer than this warm period, at least warmer than it is so far. It may still get a little warmer during this warming trend, which has been going on for 300 years and could be expected to go for four or 500 years and maybe get another degree or two warmer. But there's nothing negative about that to suggest, as they do in the Paris Accord, that 
1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius increase in global temperature is going to cause a catastrophe and an apocalypse is completely ludicrous. It was 10 to 15 degrees warmer 50 million years ago, and everything alive on Earth today came through that or it wouldn't be here. So there's no way that that kind of temperature change is going to have any negative effect. It will only have a positive effect. So in about 45 seconds we have left, and I want to spend more time with you on this in a, on, a, on a future program, not too far down the road. In the 45 seconds or so we have left, is there a, a, a shift among climate scientists who may have been supporting the AGW argument to more seeing things along the perspective just you just explained to us? Well, a lot of people who uh, w- were sort of bought into the catastrophic human-caused global warming have become what are known as lukewarmers. In other words, they agree that it's warming, they agree that the warming may be at least partly caused by humans, but they don't agree that it's catastrophic. And so that, that's, that, those are the lukewarmers. I myself, I do not actually see any solid evidence that CO2 is responsible for any of the warming that has occurred during this modern warm period. If someone shows me the evidence, I'll be glad to take a look at it. But All I right. don't see any. If, it, if there was real solid evidence, they would write it down on a piece of paper so we could read it. But okay. they have not done that. They just make generalities and talk about extreme weather and all over the map, but they don't actually say how they can prove that CO2 is causing warming. All right. Dr. Patrick Moore, thank you very much for the time. The Sensible Environmentalist, Ecosense.me, co-founder of Greenpeace. His latest paper is The Positive Role of Human Emissions of CO2. And the book is Confessions of a Greenpeace Dropout. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks a lot on Amazon.com. On Amazon.com. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML few stories I want to talk to our guest about, and we're glad she's with us. Uh, James Damore is a former Google engineer who was fired by the company and is now suing Google for alleged discrimination against white men who hold certain views. Damore and his fellow former Google engineer, David Goodman, are seeking class action status for the suit to include anyone at Google who identifies as Caucasian, conservative, or male. The suit includes a charge of female Google manager's advice for white men responding to statements about bias as, quote, something slave owners would have written for their slaves, end quote. The more also wrote an internal memo titled Google's Ideological Echo Chamber, which criticizes Google's corporate culture, diversity practices, and Moore's argument, among other things, that women are biologically unsuited for engineering work. Uh, Catalina Alvaros joins us. She's the director with the Trip Scott Law Firm in Fort Lauderdale, Boca, and Tallahassee, Florida, a former judge and juvenile sex crimes prosecutor. Ms. Alvaros, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So this particular case involving Mr. Damore, the charges he makes, the memo that he wrote, some people are calling it a manifesto, does he have a case? Is there a case here that white men are being unfairly treated by this corporation based on ideological uh, values and and gender values and, and uh, racial values? Well, he raises some concerns, but it's going to be he, he's going to have quite an uphill battle to try to establish that he is that he's being unfairly treated. And especially if he's trying to rely on statements that women are unsuited for engineering or anything like that. Because, of course, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Now, of course, what you look at is whether men, in order for him to have any valid claim under the law, he would have to show that white men are being treated differently than women who are or others that are similarly situated to him. And that's quite a that's quite a difficult um, task in order to prove. Yeah, you, you've been a judge. How would you approach that as a, from, the, from the judge's perspective? Well, it's a very fact-intense situation, so, or inquiry, for that matter. And he would have to demonstrate, uh, being the plaintiff, obviously, he has the burden of proof, mm-hmm. and he would certainly have to demonstrate with some concrete examples, not just philosophical views, uh, that this is, in fact, um, occurring. Does it surprise you that this actually is a case that's being taken to court 
I'm not surprised with the media attention it's getting, but does it surprise you this, this is a case that's being taken to court? Is it a sign of the times? I guess with what we've seen in the ca- in the past three to four months, um, nothing is really that surprising anymore. But yes, I, I think it's surprising in the sense that it's a big hurdle for him. Um, I question whether or not it will even overcome the initial uh, stages of the case. But that is yet to be seen, again, once it's pretty fact, the facts are investigated and what additional facts we learn. Okay. Let me ask you about the Me Too movement, where it stands now. And uh, we, we have some developments on, on this issue of sexual harassment, sexual assault, sexual abuse of women. Michael Douglas preemptively denying sexual harassment allegations before they go public. And James Franco I don't know what to what to make of Franco's doing as far as the sexual misconduct allegations against him. And then you have Weinstein being attacked at an Arizona restaurant. He was slapped in the face, did nothing about it. What's is this a, is this a situation that is going to play out over a short period of time and burn intensely, or is it going to be something? Do you think that's going to carry on for a protracted period of time? Are we going to looking at a situation where there's going to be a real social change that's unavoidable? I, I think it is unavoidable. I think what had, I, I don't want to say the floodgate of complaints have opened, but there certainly has been an opportunity for women who feel like they have been wronged, sexually uh, harassed to come forward, and they feel like there is a audience and a platform for them to speak, and that certainly has been helpful for them. So we keep seeing them. They were, uh, we started with Weinstein. We now just heard recently of James Franco, as you mentioned, uh, from the students, so it'll. I, I think it's going to. They're going to keep coming. I don't think it's going to go away. I think it's a topic that's open for open for discussion, and we're going to have to address it, and we're going to have to tackle it, and not just ignore it. What do you do as a lawyer? Um, someone comes to you and says, "Either a, I've been a victim of sexual abuse, sexual harassment, sexual assault, or b, someone says to you, I've been accused of." all of the above, and I'm innocent. How do you approach the two? You know, handling um, employment cases, I've had both situations come to me. Mm -hmm. And what we start off is we, as a lawyer, I have an obligation to investigate my case. What are the facts that exist? If it's the victim, what information do you have? What facts do you have to support your allegations? If it's the accused, we need to do an investigation. We need to talk to other people around. People forget nowadays in the era of uh, social media and the era of text messages, um, there's a lot of information to be gathered from from text messages, from phones, from posts, and they have to be careful because that's all that all ultimately ends up coming in. And I suppose the individual who says to you, look, I'm not guilty of any of this, that individual has to be aware that when one person steps forward, and if there are others, if it's a true story initially, if it's one person who steps forward, there's likely going to be a pattern that develops, and there'll be others who'll follow. Yeah, and the pattern, it, it, it's interesting that you bring the term pattern up, because you do need to look at that to see if there is any type of, obviously, if there is more than one allegation, but to see if there's more than one allegation, if there's any commonality, if there's any pattern within the allegations made against the individual. Okay, and you also have to see. You also have to see. Is the was the employee that's making the allegation? Was she about to lose her her job? Because that's important as well. We can't take a position that every allegation that's made is a true allegation or that it's a false allegation. We really need to look at it on its merits. Yeah, Miss Avalos, one other question for you, and it has to do with uh, with DACA. We've been watching that in this country as well, and we have more than a million Americans living in Canada. Um, what's likely to happen as far as the young people who are in the United States is concerned, the people who are young people who were brought in by their parents, they don't have any legal right to be legal, strictly legal right to be in the U.S., but there's a, there's a, there's a very strong feeling, even among many Republicans, that they shouldn't be just summarily deported. What do you see happening? And what, what's the legal, what's the most significant legal point? The most significant legal point at this juncture is, you know, when when DACA was created, it was created to provide a temporary status. But 
at this point, we have young children who were brought to this country, to the United States, only knowing and now only know what the United States has to offer, knows that their country went to school here, are in universities continuing their education, and all of a sudden you're going to yank them out. And as an immigrant myself, I was born in Colombia, have been blessed to be here since I was two years old. I don't know any other country as my country where I've grown up. So I think from a legal standpoint, um, it, Congress just needs to move and do something and take care of, and take care of business and provide a, a method to vet those 800,000 people that were protected by DACA, determine who really is able to stay and um, make extensions but it, it, to, to the program. But it's difficult to know what's happening based on just the occurrences of the last couple days. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And what eventually is decided is, of course, going to probably be played out at least in, in some cases, maybe many cases, be played out in courtrooms across the United States. Ms. Avalos, thank you very much for the time. It's good talking to you. Thank you, and have a great afternoon. Thank Hopefully you. Hopefully they'll decide before March 5th when the program expires. Yeah, me. yeah. Maybe we'll have a chance to speak with you again. Sounds good. Thanks Take so much. Care. All the best. Thank you. Bye-bye. There's Catalina Avalos. She is uh, a managing director, co-managing director at, uh, let me just get the, the law firm here, with Tripp Scott Law Firm in Fort Lauderdale, Boca, and Tallahassee in Florida. She's a former judge and a juvenile sex crimes prosecutor. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Seven words that'll scare any politician. Roy Green is holding on line one. The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network continues. Just think of people living in Hawaii, people in, on vacation in Hawaii yesterday, and suddenly across the state there is an urgent message, an alarm message, that a nuclear missile is on its way to Hawaii. And on the bottom of the message it reads, this is not a test. And with all of the news that's been bandied about, about North Korean missiles and the confrontational attitude between the North Korean dictator and President Trump, the, uh, I think the immediate response would be, if you're a person on the street and you're looking at that message, it's, yeah, this is really happening. And you could see that in the actions of people who were videoed. And we saw a film of a dad pushing his kids underground through a maintenance cover on, this, on a road. And I'm sure there were people just frozen in place, not knowing what to do. I mean, what would you do? So when, uh, a little later on, uh, we'll be talking to Colonel Peter Mansour, former executive officer to General David Petraeus in Iraq during the surge, and a former NATO tank brigade commander, about what happened, what happens, what happens with the military? What, how does the military respond to this kind of situation? And I mentioned earlier that in 1983, when a Soviet fighter plane shot down a Korean airplane, a Korean Air, Airlines plane with 269 people on board, it made things very tense between the Soviet Union and uh, the United States. And there was, subsequently, there's been talk about how close they came to, uh, to war. There's a story in the New York Times, and the headline is, Hawaii false alarm hints at thin line between mishap and nuclear war, and they detail a lot of what took place in 1983. So we'll have that coming up, but I want to start with this. Yesterday, Andrew Scheer was my guest, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And we talked to Mr. Scheer about some of the initiatives of the current government and the prime minister. And we also played for you clips from an interview that Bill Kelly from Chorus Radio 900 CHML in Hamilton, um, from his interview with uh, Justin Trudeau with the prime minister on Wednesday before Trudeau went to McMaster University for his town hall meeting. And I want to play some clips from Trudeau and some clips from Scheer and then ask you for your assessment because both of them will be running for prime minister next year. One of them will probably win unless the NDP pulls off a major upset. So let's begin with uh, Justin Trudeau and Bill Kelly on ethics. 
One of the things that, that I love to see any elected leader do is to get outside the bubble, get outside the Ottawa mm-hmm. bubble in your case, uh, uh, and, and, and listen to everyday people, listen to the coffee shop uh, discussions, and, and for that matter, the radio talk show discussions, uh, because we get feedback on a daily basis from, from uh, Canadian voters as well. And, and I, I know that you heard a little bit about this last night in the meeting in Halifax, Prime Minister, but, and you may well hear about it again here at Hamilton. But a lot of the discussion these days, as, as you know, has focused on, on ethics. Uh, and, and there's a, a series of things that people are talking about. I mean, the photo op with, uh, with Joshua Boyle and, of course, the subsequent charges against Mr. Boyle, the, the vacation with the Aga Khan, the, the Cotter payment. You heard about a lot of this stuff last night, I know. You grew up in a political environment, and, and you know that even the perception of wrongdoing can, can be detrimental to a government, right? That maybe there were no ethical things broken, maybe there were no laws broken, but there is some question about bad judgment. How do you respond to that, and how do you, how do you try to, to rectify that? Well, I think, uh, as, as I said clearly, uh, obviously on, on any question of, of vacations, uh, uh, whether it's with a, a family friend or not, uh, we're going to be clearing uh, every step of the way with the Ethics Commissioner in advance, uh, and that's certainly something that, uh, uh, that we have learned uh, through this, this whole experience, that uh, absolutely I would have done differently if, uh, if, uh, if we had to do it all over again. Uh, but on, on issues like Omar Khadr, uh, it's not an issue of ethics, it's an issue of of uh, doing what's right, even though it's uh, highly unpopular, and people are right to be frustrated that uh, uh, that we uh, made a payment to uh, to Omar Khadr of money that could have gone to uh, to different things or better things. Uh, but it's important that people understand that there have to be consequences when governments uh, do not stand up to defend or even actively uh, you know, compromise uh, a Canadian's rights, uh, regardless of whether they're popular or unpopular or it's politically easy or hard. You know, these are lessons that we have to learn that are, that are difficult ones, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very serene about the fact that we had to do that. Even though it, it frustrates me, like it frustrates all Canadians, and the more we remember uh, how frustrated we are, uh, the more it will ensure that no government uh, in the future, the way governments in the past did, uh, compromises the fundamental rights of Canadians. So there's the uh, the first... He's got that memorized, huh? There's the first exchange between Bill Kelly and Justin Trudeau. They went on with this. In hindsight, did the government do as good a job as it could have in explaining why this happened? And, and I use this as a point of reference, and I know this came up in the discussion, was the Mararar payment from some years ago uh, for a very similar circumstance. I mean, there were an apples and oranges comparison, but I mean, the amount of money and, and the rationales, there were some very strong similarities there. Uh, yes, uh, I mean it's it's a question of of uh, I mean uh, Mararar was uh, somewhat uh, more sympathetic for many people than uh, than Omar Khadr is and was, but the, the the fact remains that this isn't about the individual or their behavior. This is actually about governments taking responsibility for their own behavior. And previous governments uh, allowed uh, an individual's rights to be violated, regardless of what that individual did or didn't do, that should never have happened. And the more we stay uh, you know, angry uh, and vocal about having had to, uh, all of us, to collectively pay, um, the better the chances that no government of the future will ever find uh, it uh, worthwhile to uh, violate someone's rights. So now Mahar Arar is brought into the issue, and the argument is essentially the same. From the Prime Minister, Bill then went on, and this is, I think, the final question that he asked him, and he never really got to finish the question. Listen. There's so many things that we could talk about, and I, I know that a lot of the stuff we're just going to have to wait until you've got a little more time when you can join us here in studio and talk about some of these issues. But uh, just to, to wrap up, because I know that your time is tight, Prime Minister, uh, to, to go back again a couple of years, and I'm just trying to echo some of the sentiments that we hear on the program here on CHML uh, from our listeners and from Canadian voters. Uh, a lot of people in the last election took a chance on your government. Uh, they were disenchanted with the, the previous administration. And uh, they heard your promises about veterans. They heard your promises about more transparency, about eliminating political and, and governmental scandals. And and, and they heard the promises about the economy as well. I mean, that was really at the core of our platform. It was the core of our approach. That's what I'll be talking about today, where what we did and what we chose to do uh, was invest in Canadians again, invest in infrastructure, because the country needed investment, the country needed growth. and. 
it's paying off. We have the highest growth rate in in the G7 right now. Unemployment is at a record low level, uh, and and people are feeling confident about their jobs and their future again. I mean, there's still a lot more work to do, but that happened because we knew that investing in Canadians, particularly Canadians who need the help. Uh, is the way to grow the economy, and that's that's what we that's the commitment we made, and that's what we're living up to. So there's the one about the economy, and I find it hard. I want to jump in editorially, but I'd rather not because I'd like to be as fair as I can, at least in the presentation. You know where my leanings are. It's not going to be a great surprise. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML. Yesterday, Andrew Scheer was my guest, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and we did a 20-minute interview with Mr. Scheer, and we've chopped it down to uh, two or three audio clips we want you to hear, and then we'll have you decide between Trudeau and Scheer. So here's what went on between Andrew Scheer and me as far as Trudeau allowing ISIS members to come back into this country without any fears of criminal responsibility. You're looking across the aisle in Canada's parliament at a prime minister who is welcoming back to this country individuals who left to join the terrorist Islamic State, which conducted genocidal killing, engaged in torture, sexual slavery, and boasted about beheading people, showing it on television, and set a Jordanian fighter pilot on fire in a cage. And this prime minister argues these returning individuals may make a, quote, extraordinary, end quote, contribution to Canada. As you sit facing the Prime Minister, and you've tried to engage him in uh, on this issue, and he rattles on about how the, 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 the Liberal Party, how the government of Canada takes care of the security of Canada, he won't deal with the issue. Speak to that, speak to the well, what, what he's doing, Mr. Scheer, and then what you're getting back from Justin Trudeau. Well, first of all, I, as, as you can imagine, it gets my blood boiling to, to see the dismissive attitude that Justin Trudeau has for a very real concern. Uh, you know, as, as you so eloquently, you know, as, as you know, meaningfully put out, uh, we're not talking about uh, a 19-year-old kid who stole a car uh, and now, you know, you, you want to engage in rehabilitation and, and maybe help them turn their life around and, and it is true there are some people who uh, get their act together, clean up their life, and can uh, speak to some of those issues so that other young people don't turn to a life of crime. We're not talking about uh, people who have seen the light and, and, and regret the errors uh, of their past. We're talking about some of the most despicable people on this planet, uh, people who leave their, their own country, people who leave countries uh, like Canada where they enjoy basic freedoms, fundamental guarantees of liberty, they're able to practice their faith, they're able to speak out, uh, and, 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 and they leave this country to go fight for a terrorist organization that is intent on committing acts of genocide, that, that sell women and girls into slavery, that commit uh, executions in some of the most gruesome ways. And they join this group, fire on Canadian soldiers or our allies, uh, and now they're coming back. And again, they're not coming back because uh, they regret what they've done. They've, they're coming back because we're winning. We're winning the war against uh, this terrorist group. And at the very least, I would like to see our Prime Minister say, we are going to introduce new measures or we're going to give our national security forces tools to prosecute these people, to hold them accountable for the heinous acts uh, that they've done. Uh, we get the exact opposite. It's almost like uh, Justin Trudeau is, is eager uh, you know, to, to sit down in the therapist chair with them and try to you know, work through their issues. Uh, it, nothing offends me more than the attitude that Justin Trudeau has to this particular... So, there's that. Then, a little later in the interview, I asked Mr. Shear about the issue of globalism versus nationalism. Have a listen. Do you uh, do you subscribe or do you have any any feelings any 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 opinion on what I hear people express quite regularly, and that there is a there's a motivation behind um, the numbers of people who are coming to Canada. There is some effort underway led by the likes of Soros and Trudeau, and in in Europe, Juncker and and others like them who are globalists to really do away with the concept of nations, Mr. Trudeau told the New York Times, 
that he ex- that he wants Canada to be the first post-nation state. What's your sense on that? Well, you know, I, I do get concerned when I, when I read things like that. I certainly know that uh, there's a heck of a lot of evidence that there were foreign groups inter, you know, being becoming involved in the last Canadian election. You know, there, there are uh, groups headed up uh, by people around the world uh, who, who gave money to advocacy groups and, and helped mobilize uh, people here in Canada uh, to, uh, to help ensure Justin Trudeau won. There's, there's been uh, you know, allegations made about certain groups uh, who continue to, to take foreign funding to, to advocate against uh, important projects like natural natural resource projects. So, uh, but but the thing that gives me hope and optimism is I, I do believe that uh, principles like freedom, like equality, like uh, like free enterprise, th- th- those do transcend national boundaries or ideas of, of uh, you know it transcends differences between groups of people. Every mm-hmm. single human being uh, has those God-given rights of, of, of freedom and equality and freedom of speech and freedom of expression. We, we recognize them in our Constitution uh, and in our Charter, but we recognize them as being natural human rights. Right. Uh, so, you know, I, I, what I am, am working towards is that regardless of anyone who, you know, regardless of where you come from, of how long your family's been in Canada, uh, that, uh, that conservatives have that message that, that we believe in fundamental freedoms and equality, and we believe that it's always free people making free decisions that create better societies. As I'm listening to Andrew Shearer, I'm realizing just how infrequently we have the opportunity to hear him. During question period, you'll see the video, you watch Global News, you'll see the uh, the video of Andrew Scheer perhaps engaging Justin Trudeau on the issues of ethics, on the issues of ISIS. But we don't hear him that often in this kind of one-on-one interview as we did yesterday. I also asked Mr. Scheer about Mr. Trudeau's ethics and about the payment to uh, Omar Khadr. Here's what he said about that. Have a listen. Well, I, I think it's phony. I think it's completely fake. I think the Prime Minister realized uh, soon after the Omar Khadr payment that Canadians weren't buying his version of events, so he tried to uh, display this mock outrage and, and fake uh, anger as well. He chose to make that payment. He did not have to. There was no court order telling him to do so. Omar Khadr already received his compensation. He got to come back to the country that he uh, essentially took up arms against. Mm. So uh, I don't buy his, his, his anger at all. I think it's completely phony and i and i'm and i don't believe that he has any sincerity on his ethics violations if he was truly sorry if he really felt that he broke the trust of Keynes, he would pay back taxpayers for the costs associated with his trip it was a it was a, a tremendous lack of judgment it was, it was a inexcusable lapse right. of judgment for the prime minister to accept this type of gift again he's trying to show some kind of mock uh, uh okay mr Shear. you're actually serious you pay the money back so there's the um, the position Andrew Scheer took on the issue of uh, ethics with the Prime Minister and the payment toward Omar Khadr, saying that Mr. Trudeau's argument that he understands the ethical transgression and that he will check with the ethics commissioner of any future vacations he takes. I have real issues, real issues with that as well. And the payment toward Omar Khadr, we've talked about this so many times. It just, what he, what he says, what Trudeau says, just doesn't make any sense. It really is nonsense. We had to pay him the $10.5 million because we had to make good on errors made by previous Canadian governments, which allowed the uh, CSIS and the, the Americans to violate Khadr's charter rights. How many times do we have to say the case was before the courts? He was asking for $20 million. Let the courts decide. That's what they're there for. That's why it's before the courts. The motivation for Mr. Trudeau providing the money to Cotter was nothing to do with what Trudeau has said. Nothing. Zero. And he keeps talking about the family friend. Well, the ethics commissioner, out, now gone ethics commissioner, Mary Dawson, pointed out that she didn't believe that the Aga Khan was a family friend and not certainly not Uncle Kay. Anyway, I had to get that in. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So, Hawaii yesterday, the uh, alarm that there was a nuclear missile attack, for real, this is not a drill, is what it said on the, uh, on the uh, boards 
in Hawaii. That was the message. My guest is Colonel Peter Mansour, the author of Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus, and the Remaking of the Iraq War. Colonel Mansour was the executive officer to General Petraeus, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show. We're going to make a decision here. We were going to have only a few minutes with uh, Colonel Mansour, but we're going to change the schedule here and spend a little more time with the colonel on this important story. Colonel Mansour, thank you so much for the story, for the time. And, and, and how does this happen? How does Everybody wants to know, how could it happen that such a terrifying alert, this is not a drill, is sent? Well, I would be glib and say never uh, underestimate the incompetence of civil service, but that's exactly what it was in this case. There was a, a shift change in the uh, command center in Hawaii, and understandably, the, the shifts go through a, a drill to make sure that the oncoming shift is ready to go, and someone hit the toggle on the uh, software that sent out a real-world alert uh, that a ballistic missile was inbound to Hawaii, and what the astonishing thing is no one noticed it, and then when they did, they had no way to retract the message. It was a simple uh, sheer incompetence. So there's no way to knock that off. There's no way to, because people have been asking, why was it out there for as long as it was? Were there political games being played? No, that was not the case. And then they've now put in a procedure where they can recall the message immediately. They, they were able to do it on social media, Twitter and Facebook and so forth. But what they weren't able to do is send out another cell phone message to all those cell phones saying uh, disregard previous message. It was an error. Very disturbing to watch how people reacted. It gave you an idea of what the public response would be were the message to be real. There's nowhere to go. You can't hide. You saw the father pushing his children down a, a, a maintenance uh, hole after lifting the cover off. Anything to pr- protect in any way. Um, Colonel Mansier, how does the military respond to to something like this? Is there uh, heightened awareness, heightened uh, um, alerts that that, uh, that exist? Well, uh, ironically, it was the North American uh, Air Defense Command that sent out the first uh, message about 14 minutes, I guess, after the uh, first message went out that said there's no incoming missile. And so there is constant monitoring of the airspace over North Korea and the missile threat, and the military was fairly much on top of it. This was... Uh, a civil error in terms of the civil defense organization in the state of Hawaii. So the military would not react to that? Uh, no, the military would not react to the the message. They'd, mon- they'd rely on their own systems, their own radars and so forth, which showed that uh, nothing was happening. So they, there's no shock down the system. It doesn't uh, knock over dominoes all the way to the Oval Office and the president who has to make a decision on what do I do now? Uh, no, the, not in this case. But, you know, ironically, there is a Cold War episode in uh, 1983, I think it was, where a Soviet officer in the command center in Moscow got a real-world incoming missile alert and had to make the decision whether to notify the uh, Soviet premier, and he decided not to. And in, in that case, it, it turned out also to be a false alarm, a software glitch, um, and he was um, he was not treated well by the military. They thought that he should have uh, performed his duty and and uh, perhaps instigated nuclear war by alerting the, the high command of incoming uh, missiles that weren't in the air. Wow. Because I, I re- read something earlier today about that, also the shooting down of the Korean Airlines passenger jet by a Soviet fighter plane. And there'd been an American spy plane, they say, in the, loitering was the word, in the area. And the Soviets weren't sure what was going on, and they felt that it could be uh, the first step of a preemptive attack by the United States on the Soviet Union. And maybe they would respond, because if, you, if you're second in this game of getting your missiles off, you're the loser. Yeah, uh, you might be the loser, but I think the the key to deterrence is to have a uh, secure second strike capability and to be able to ride out a first strike. And that would also allow you to overcome mistakes like this where there really is no danger. And uh, what you don't want is someone uh, shooting off retaliatory weapons, missiles, or launching aircraft 
when um, when it's just a software glitch like mm-hmm. this. And this isn't about when we talk about nuclear weapons. We're not talking about numbers on a scoreboard. We're talking about annihilation. Yeah, nuclear weapons. The the latest um, nuclear weapon that North Korea tested is about three times the size of the one that destroyed Hiroshima. So these are these are not small devices. Um, and as far as uh, what to do, um, I I think the uh, you know there's very little that civilians can do. I mean, we went through this point in the Cold War where people were making fallout shelters in their basements and so mm-hmm. forth. I, I think it's just a exercise in futility. If the weapon hits and you're in its blast zone, you're probably going to die. Um, I, I hope these sorts of incidents and bringing up what you did about 1983, I hope I, I would hope that it would alert us to really the, the folly of these massive weapons because nobody ultimately will win. It'll be, it'll be the end for everybody. If everything's fired off, if both arsenals or all the arsenals in the world are fired off, that's it. Well, clearly, Pretty much, right? a major nuclear exchange between, say, Russia and the United States, it could destroy the entire planet. Uh, it'll destroy the, uh, the atmosphere, if nothing else, with nuclear fallout. But a nuclear exchange with North Korea, although it would be devastating to South Korea, Japan, and, and maybe even cities in North America, um, the only nation it would absolutely destroy would be North Korea, which mm-hmm. would be obliterated. Uh, so I'm not sure that Kim Jong-un uh, wants to launch a, a first strike. I think he believes his nuclear arsenal is uh, a deterrent against a U.S. Uh, attempt or a Chinese attempt at unseating him from power, and I think that's the way he views uh, these devices as defensive in nature. Colonel Mansour, how dangerous a world do we live in now? You and I have talked about the issue of uh, terrorism, uh, particularly when ISIS still controlled a lot of land, a lot of territory in Syria and Iraq. But there's the specter of terrorism hanging over everyone. There's the specter of North Korea. There's the uncertainty of the relationship between Russia and Ukraine, and it just seems that there are trigger points, maybe globally, that could start something really significant. Significant? Uh, am I right? Am I wrong? Is this a more dangerous world than we've experienced for some time? Well, I think you're right. Now, the Cold War was really dangerous. Mm-hmm. But you had the stability of a bipolar world order that sort of brought a measure of predictability to it. What's happened since 2001 is the unleashing of potential great power conflict, the unleashing of of global terrorism, the unleashing of these small wars that the United States uh, continues to fight, the rise of ISIS and so forth, Russia uh, trying to reassert itself on the world stage, North Korea, and what it has led to is unpredictability in the world system. And when you have unpredictability, you have the potential for massive conflict that we haven't really seen since, uh, since the Korean War. I'm just thinking about the people who have the responsibility to operate the war machinery, if you will, the, uh, the, the militaries. And, and you know so well about what happens inside the United States military, and that's always been what we've relied on to protect us, and that's what the, the Western world has relied on, the United States presence to provide protection. Um, and I, I hear that from some people that the U.S. military, because of lack of funding under the Obama regime, is not as prepared as it was, and needs to be better prepared, uh, at least as far as equipment is concerned and, and, and personnel is concerned. Is, is all of that true, or is that overstated? Oh, there's a degree of truth to that. Uh, the U.S. military is well-funded, but in, most of its funds go towards personnel costs, and so it's uh, put aside a generation of, of weapons procurement that now needs uh, to be done. Um, it has a uh, lack of money for readiness and training, and although it's still quite capable, it's not perhaps quite the, uh, the sort of deterrence that we wish it would be. Now, the, the one thing that is really well-funded, and more funds are probably going to be put into it, is ballistic missile defense, because that is really our first line 
of defense against a North Korean missile attack, which is really, I think, the most um, uh, probable or, or possible uh, existential threat that uh, the United States and uh, North America faces. You mentioned North America, and we have about a minute. You must be thrilled. Americans must be thrilled over the fact that our prime minister has decided not to buy new fighter jets for our air force, but to go and buy the uh, the, the scrap the the Australians were ready to to turf. Well, uh, I haven't been tracking the issue, but uh, you know it always helps when you have commonality in equipment and parts, and um, it would be helpful if Canada and the United States operate pretty much the same equipment when possible. Yeah. Well, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, Colonel Mansour. Thank you so very much. And uh, we'll look forward to speaking with you again. And uh, the book is Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus and the Remaking of the Iraq War. It's a great read. Thanks again, Colonel Mansour. Thanks, Roy. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Dave Foxcroft refereed the 2017 Grey Cup. And that's the last time we spoke with Dave on the air. And uh, here he is again. And what, I mean, 2017 couldn't have been any better for you. Hey, Roy, great. Thanks for having me on. And like you said, uh, we spoke right before the the Grey Cup, and what a game that was. Yeah. Uh, you know, for our fans of, uh, of this great league and uh, those players, both teams played their hearts out. Us as referees, we we stayed out of the game and let them play. And uh, what an exciting finish! Well, so, it was it was what it was. What about what Canadian football is all about? That's right. We had the snow. We had the great halftime show, which I didn't get to see. But <laughs> I wish that's one of the things of being a referee. You don't get to enjoy everything, but. Uh, it was great to be a part of it, right? So it was a great experience for you to be the ref, and what an honor, and an, and an honor that you earned and deserved, Dave. Right. Thank you very much, Roy. So you also officiated in the National Football League at Lambeau Field, preseason game involving the Packers in a program that exists between the National Football League and the Canadian Football League. 74,000 people in attendance, I understand. What was that like? Oh, that was a lot of fun. I was fortunate. I had my dad at that game, too, so so that was really special to have him there in the stands uh you know for so many years i went and traveled with him and and watched him referee as he was going through the ncaa and the final fours so it was really neat to have him there in the crowd watching me we still go to the final four as a family every year you know it's one of those once in a lifetime experiences that we're fortunate enough to do every year and my dad and uh, my two brothers we get to do that every year it's a lot of fun yeah and the legendary ron foxcroft who was the only Canadian referee to referee Division I basketball in the NCAA and refereed Michael Jordan's first college game. That's and, right, at North Carolina. In North Carolina. So, let's get to the, uh, let's get to the fact of your, of your success with the lottery. So many of us play. You don't usually do that, but somehow you wound up buying tickets. How'd that happen, Dave? I, I, I don't. You say success, but uh, I guess it's really luck, right? So, uh, you know, it was a great finish to the year for me. It, uh, it was a year that I turned 50 as well. So, you know, there's a lot of milestones that happened in that uh, the year 2017. I'll never forget it. So I had a little, like, like you often do that time of year, you have Christmas lunches. And you have, you know, I was out with, uh, with our molders. Uh, John Chapani at uh, Nordica Plastics, and he jokingly said that he had just bought the ticket for the 60 million Lotto Max that was happening that night. And I was I, my immediate response to him was concerned. Well, if you win the 60 million, who's going to do our whistle molding for us? <laughs> so, so he reassured me that that it's not going to change his life, and he'll still be molding whistles for us on Monday morning. So. All right. So that was good. So I left that lunch, and I kind of said to myself, hey, $60 million. Sounds good. I think I'll buy a ticket. So, so that's what I did. And, uh, Roy, I want to walk you through the process, because I almost didn't even know that I won. And it's, it's, I have this iGaming account, and that's where I actually bought the ticket. Was, uh, I set up this, this Ontario lottery uh, account years ago and i rarely use it i rarely use it 
you have to be in Ontario to actually activate it. And I travel so much that uh, I just don't I just don't go in very often. So I actually uh, went in, and, and that's where I actually bought the ticket uh, for this 60 million Lotto Max draw that was happening on uh, December 22nd. And then uh, then I went away. So I. I went away with my boys. Uh, we have a place down in Florida, and we, that's where we spend Christmas, and we had a great time and uh, doing what you do in Florida, you know, fishing, jet skiing, uh, pickleball, all that sort of stuff. So, And then I come back, and uh, I thought, okay, let's check. You know, now I'm back to work. I remember it's January 3rd, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I came back to work January 2nd, but... My dad works me too hard, so I didn't have a chance that day to actually go and uh, and check the ticket. So I log in January 3rd, and I, I look, and I actually printed the ticket. So I had a copy of the ticket with me, and like I don't really know or understand fully how these things work, but there's a bunch of different numbers there. It's not just like one ticket with with one number on it. I, I, I spent like $35 and I bought the Encore and I, I bought everything that you could buy, right? Um, so there's a bunch of numbers. Um, I don't even know how many tickets you get for that. And so I log in and I look and, and there's, these, uh, there's these results from the draw. And it says, uh, you know, not a winner, not a winner. And there's, there's four of them, not a winner. And I'm just looking, and it's like December 29th, not a winner. I go, oh, logged out. Figured I didn't win anything. So I got this ticket. I like to print them, and I I had it in the briefcase. Dave, I hate to do this to you, but we've got about one minute. Okay, so I I look at it, uh, and I notice it's December 22nd. And I'm thinking, well, weren't those telling me December 29th? So I go back in and I log in and uh, now I set the parameters on the screen to this was January 3rd. It defaulted back to December 1st and I click it and I get a message saying not a good search. So I usually have a, a, an IT guy with me when I travel in the league, Jason Maggio. He usually fixes these things for me, but he wasn't there. So so I set the parameters for this, the search and that's when I get it into the window it turns out not only did I win the two hundred nineteen thousand, but uh, I also won some free tickets on the <laughs> December twenty ninth draw that I didn't even know that I had, I had bought tickets for. So that's the results I was getting. So, so your listeners that have these iGaming accounts, yeah, make sure they check them carefully and set the set the dates there right because okay. you very easily miss it. So, and, and I almost did. So $219,000 win. Congratulations on that. That's the icing on the 2017 cake for you. And uh, I have an old ticket somewhere. i got to find it. Dave, Go thank you. Okay. Thanks so much for spending the time with us. I hope 2018 is just as good for you. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Roy. All we'll talk best. soon. All the best. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye now. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.